Hey, what's going on? This is Billy Newman, and you're listening to the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. I'm recording this for uh, July 24th, 2017. What is it, a Monday? I'm back at it. I'm back to work, and I'm back to putting together a podcast. I wrote out a couple things, but uh, but yeah, just talking out a couple of the ideas and the stuff that I'm putting together for uh, Billy Newman Photo Industries, or whatever that would mean, but... Uh, I think really it's just uh, my little website and my Instagram account as it is, and then the uh, the fun photos that I put up from that. But I'm having a great time uh, building a bunch of pictures this summer and uh, kind of figuring out a few ideas about uh, equipment and photography and sort of about how I want to take stuff over the next few months. And I've been working really hard at that and making some interesting changes that I think are going to help me out a lot. Uh, but it's coming together a little slower than I thought, but probably about the right amount of time. What I think maybe mentioned on that last podcast is I, um, I've been shooting Nikon for years. I've talked about it a handful of times. Like I had a ton of film cameras for Nikon stuff. I always had sort of a small number of mediocre Nikon lenses that I had. And then, um, I kind of moved around between, um, between a Nikon D2H as a, as like the camera that I learned on years ago when I was in college. And then I shot a bunch of stuff with that. And then I got a a Nikon D3, you know, moving up to the full frame section. And then I found out I was kind of tired of that. Or what I realized is that these just still look like my pictures. Everybody realizes that. Everybody knows it's not like gear related as, as it were uh, in all ways. And it's not that the gear is what's going to change the look of the photographs, but it's, uh, it's more about what's required now or what's necessary now. Where do I need to go to? And I really need to keep that in mind. But uh, ultimately what I decided is that I wanted to get rid of all that Nikon stuff. <laughs> And shift over to uh, to something else, or, or just kind of make a move and try it out for a short period of time, or a long period of time if it ends up being something that I really like. But I wanted to reinvest. I wanted to try and go for the Sony equipment that I've been really interested in, and I've uh, I've kind of appreciated some of the stuff that that they've been doing on that side of it. I've started working with Sony equipment for the production photography stuff I do for work, and I'm really impressed with the results for it. But uh, but that's why I sold a bunch of stuff through eBay. I sold a bunch of stuff through KEH. I've tried to reaccumulate that money together so that I can go out, buy a couple lenses, buy a good body, and uh, and try and get to work this summer with uh, with some of that equipment. I've kept a couple film cameras and a couple film lenses, uh, and that's definitely getting by or getting me by for uh, for this time of year in the summertime. You know, going around taking photos of stuff with. Uh, with film has always been one of my favorite hobbies, so I'm having a good time with that. But my interest is to try and get a Sony A7R pretty soon. I'm probably going to go with that used body and then update that body when I can or in the next year, year and a half, two years or something like that, when I amortize it and use the value of the camera up a little bit. But what I'm going to try and do is focus on uh, collecting some of the better lenses for stuff. Mid, Still, you know, good lenses, probably primes is sort of what I was leaning toward now. It seems like prime lenses is what I spend most of my time with, uh, trying to photograph stuff with, uh, with like a really like a nice wide angle prime, or like an 85-18 prime. That's kind of I think some of the stuff that I'm going for. But I really end up kind of choosing that type of photography most of the time, and I, I think I'm most interested in the way that those uh, those photos come out, or you know, the, the, just the look of it, the compression of it, the the way that things come together. I find that I'm pretty happy just moving forward a little bit or, or back a little bit to get the photo I want instead of using a zoom lens all the time. And I like the flexibility of the wider aperture stuff that you get with the, with the prime lenses. And I'm impressed with the reviews on a lot of the new, new equipment that's out there for, uh, 
for these Sony cameras. So all of that seems like it would be a real big upgrade for, uh, for what I've been used to in some of the 10-year-old uh, the camera equipment collection I've been uh, putting together for the last little while. Um, so I'm trying to put that camera gear together. It's going a little slower. Like I was saying, I sold a bunch of it to KEH. Like I sold a lot of my lenses and a lot of the camera bodies I had back to them. I put it in this real big box. It was weeks, or maybe what, two weeks ago? Two and a half weeks ago now? I put it in this real big, like 18 inch box, filled it with packing peanuts and it went off to Georgia. I, I just got an email today that it's in Georgia and they're reviewing it and you know, they're figuring out what, what money to give me, right? <laughs> I'm sure it'll be a, a huge amount. Uh, so all that's going to be reinvested back into the camera equipment. But it was interesting kind of working with KEH a little bit and doing some sales back to them. And then also working with eBay to try and sell some of the items. Like I sold the D3 on eBay. And I may have made more money by selling it on eBay than going directly through KEH. I think some of the digital camera bodies, they get a little depreciated when you're selling them back to KEH. Um, but it was a fair deal. I think I sold it for a fair, or, you know, a fair amount of money uh, for, for what it was worth in the market. And I'm happy with that. eBay ended up being a little faster. But the problem, or one of the things to consider is that between, hmm, well, between PayPal and eBay, it seems like it's going to take about 13% of the total prop, or well, you're just your total cost of the item, which can really eat into the profits that you would be making. So what I tried to do is go through and compare what what my profit would be on the item after all the fees and all the sales and all the shipping and such, uh, and then what my profit would be if I sold it to KEH. I tried to do that math a little bit, and it, and it seemed like KEH was really a good deal for a lot of items. You have to be a little specific about what the market value could be if you just sold that item locally, like through Craigslist where you're not going to have any fees, or, uh, or through eBay if, if you don't have a market locally where you could sell that off to. It, you, can, you can find a market on eBay to get that sold to, which I love about eBay and will probably still keep using eBay for. Like I have a whole bunch of broken, well, like broken equipment, equipment that could be used for parts, that sort of thing. That's a whole category on eBay that it might still have some value, some $5, 10 $15 value for some of these items, where on KEH it would have no value. So there's a few opportunities where you can really kind of pull more money out of, uh, of some of the things that you have kind of stuffed away and stuffed in the closets. And that's what I've been trying to do is turn that into cash, liquidate it, and then turn it into a new camera. <laughs> that's the plan. Uh, and it's going really well so far, too. I have a bunch of stuff uh, kind of lined out and selected to to pull together. But uh, I, I don't know. It's been great. I love doing it. I love doing the photo stuff. And, uh, and yeah, it's kind of fun switching everything over and, you know, trying to sell off everything. It feels actually kind of good. I've been only, you know, using the same stuff forever. And it's been cool getting stuff out of the house. Like the D1, I sold it. I've had it since 2009. The D40, my first camera I've had for more than 10 years, I sold it. See ya. It's great. It's out of here. I'm going to get some cash for it. I'm going to turn it into something I can use every day that's really a good thing, you know, like, Oh, yeah, I want to use this instead of something that's just on the, the camera shelf in the living room, part of the museum. Uh, so no more museum, no more of that. I'm going uh, straight for the focus of what I want in the museum is my photographs that are great, not old cameras I can't use. And I think that mentality, the mentality, is something that i got to figure out. So, so I'm happy that I'm selling that stuff back, um, but I haven't been for the last few days. I have a couple of emails I have to get back to actually today for some of the stuff that was listed up on Craigslist because I've been up in the San Juan Islands at the north end of Washington, up at the, like the north end of the Puget Sound, probably close to Victoria, Canada. I'm not really sure how that all works out, but there's that big island 
that kind of jets off right past uh, Vancouver. Is it Vancouver Island? Prince Edward Island? I don't know which one it is, but that area where Victoria is and then south of there, in between past the border of Canada, as you come into the United States, there's a series of islands that are out uh, in this gap in the Puget Sound, and that's the San Juan Islands. And I went up to spend about four or five days on Orcas Island, which is really cool, you know, and it really reminds me a ton of Oregon, a ton of Applegate, Oregon, strangely. It's kind of like a small town. It's got a lot of forested trees, a lot of greenery, a lot of open fields. Seems really mellow, peaceful. And it just really reminded me a lot of like the, the countryside out in the Willamette Valley or the countryside out in Southern Oregon. It just had this feel to it that kind of caught on to me a couple times. But it was great being out there. It was great taking photographs. It was, uh, it was fun spending some time in, in sort of a small, kind of quaint little, uh, little area like that. It was cool being on an island like that. I'd never been up there before. One thing I noticed in the evenings, we were going to go photograph the sunset. But we'd moved so much further north that the sunset was almost an hour later. It was like, well, I think it was, well, so we're, in, we're almost in July now. We've been kind of pulling back from the solstice a little bit. It's a little bit darker now. The sun was setting at like 8.55. There was still a sun up. We would never have that here. Here in this part of Oregon, it's about 8.30 and the sun's going to go down. And that's on the solstice too. Nowadays, it's probably about 8 o'clock. So that was like another hour of light north. Maybe it was that much. But it was cool. It was fun being up there. We had a great time uh, spending some of our days yeah, for summer break up there. Uh, interesting weather though. I don't know if I could really swing it in that part of the world. Seattle, Tacoma. That whole Puget Sound area was sprinkly and rainy the whole time. As soon as you crossed the Oregon border up into Washington, it was just sprinkly and misty and kind of cloudy. It would blow through. You'd see some sky. But not enough, though. I don't know if I could handle it forever. But it was cool making it past Seattle, making it up toward uh, Bellingham, cutting over. I've never really been up in that area before, but it makes me feel like I really need to get more familiar with that. Like, I never really consider the amount of population it is between Portland, Tacoma, and Seattle, and then probably on out from there. I mean, the Seattle area kind of stretches up in population up into Kirkland and past there into was Bellevue, Everett. That whole area, it seems like there's, you know, a significant number of people that live in the Northwest. I always have this perspective of sort of like Corvallis to Redding, California, where there's no big town, but it's six hours of driving. And so I always have this perception that there's really nothing out there. There's nothing even further north than that either. Uh, but there is. I just don't know about it. So I need, to, I need to dream a little bigger, it seems like. It was great, though, getting up there. It was cool. We went up to the top, this, uh, this summit of one of the mountains on the island, and we looked out. And, you know, it's kind of embarrassing for someone that prides himself so much in participating in the Cascade Mountain Range of the, uh, the West Coast over here. I don't think that I had ever seen in my life so far Mount Baker. I don't think I'd seen it. I've never really been that far north into the North Cascades as you come up to the Canadian border. I never spent much time up there. I'm sure, I mean, I've seen Mount Rainier plenty of times, but I don't think I'd ever really made it up far enough to view Mount Baker up there. And it was cool. It was cool to get a, a chance to see it. And it also kind of strikes me that, man, I need to spend a lot more time this summer heading up to the Enchantments, to Rainier, to St. Helens, to Mount Adams, to Mount Baker, of course, to the, the park of the Northern Cascades, to the other side in western Washington of, uh, like, the, like, what is it, like, Mount Olympus, or, you know, the, uh, the Olympus National Park area. I want to go over there. These are places I've never been in the Northwest. And then furthermore than that, there's, there's uh, 
Vancouver, British Columbia, and Victoria, British Columbia, which are both pretty good-sized cities that I don't even account when I talked earlier about Seattle, Tacoma, Portland as being like, uh, you know, population centers of the Northwest. I don't even consider Victoria and, and, uh, and Vancouver, British Columbia. But it's cool. I should check those, stuff, those places out. I mean, they're huge cities. They'd totally be on my map if they were in the U.S. But for whatever reason, they have that border thought that there's nothing past the border. Silly thinking of me. Oh, and then the other thing I wanted to talk about was the eclipse that's coming up. It's the one month, well, it's a couple days after the one month, but this is my notice to all of you, the four of you, that the eclipse is coming up August 21st, 2017. It's going to be passing over Bend, Oregon. I remember hearing about this for more than 10 years now, hearing about how uh, the eclipse is going to be passing over Oregon. I've been waiting for it too, and it's going to be super exciting. We, we saw the one in 2012, that annular eclipse. This one's great. It's a total eclipse. So we're going to see most of Oregon get, get kind of blacked out by this eclipse. Well, I mean, you know, there's parts, there's edges of it that are definitely going to be, uh, I suppose, in the partial range. But there's going to be a good bit of that sun that is blocked off by the moon. And I think a lot of areas in that path are really going to see a significant amount of darkness come over. Which will be really cool. I'm working to get right in that path. I think it's like just south of Portland, kind of through Salem, in between Mount Jefferson and Mount Hood. And it kind of slides out north of Bend into the Ochicos, into like the Fremont National Forest or whatever that is. And then out toward Ontario into Idaho into Utah and then so on and so forth down into Florida, I suppose is what it is. I think it starts at 10 a.m. that day. And man, overall... I guess what I'd say is that I'm just really excited for it. But I hear there's a huge amount of people, like a huge influx of people that are going to be showing up into that area, like millions of people. I don't know what that means. Maybe it's just a few of the millions of people that are in Oregon that are kind of relocating to that really good spot. Maybe a handful of people. I'm sure a lot of people from like the, the Washington area, the Idaho area that might be coming over. But, but maybe it's, it's people from further out that want to come to Oregon. I think Oregon's been pushing it really big as being a, a big part of the, the Oregon eclipse or the, the all-American eclipse as they've been talking about it elsewhere. Let's hope, at least, that the weather is good that day. Or that there's no big fires out in eastern Oregon. You know, that's the thing that I'm kind of worried about. My plan is to head out east of the Cascades and get a spot that's, uh, that's going to be good enough to get some photographs of it. One thing to consider, since it's a morning eclipse, you're going to have to find a spot to view it, at least, that has... Uh, has a lot of open sky toward the east, right? Or like southeast? Maybe just east. Yeah, it's not really going to be that south. It's still summertime. It's going to be about 10 a.m., so it's just going to be kind of due east up in the sky. Probably going to be kind of high by 10 o'clock. I mean, shoot, I mean, what, it's like 1 o'clock now. The sun's already tilted over toward the, the western horizon. Um, and it still has tons of time left in the day. But, uh but yeah, it's going to be a great time being out there. I'm going to do a scouting trip. You know, this is how much I've been thinking about it. So I want to go out and I want to scout an area in the Ochicos, in the John Day area, in the Jefferson National or Jefferson Wilderness area, any of those areas. I'd love to try and find like a, a, a spot for a camp, you know. Uh, but that's what I hear is that in Bend, all the hotels have been sold out. All of those consumer prices have just been inflated to this insane degree for all the tourists and, and people that are coming in. Uh, and I think a lot of people in Oregon are just considering it a money grab, which is the shame for a lot of the small businesses that really aren't any good at business is that they just kind of consider any of these events a money grab for themselves. And they kind of come off so selfishly that it puts a bad taste in people's mouths about the experience. And 
Yeah, ultimately, that's what a lot of a lot of dopey people in these small towns end up doing. But I won't be participating in that small businesses. I'll just be out camping and photographing this really cool eclipse. I'm going to try and get a bunch of my friends together. And I'll, I'm sure we'll try and do a bunch of media stuff around that. But yeah, keep that on your calendars, guys. Cool deal. Seeing the eclipse. First time that this one's been seen for 18 years, 11 days, and 8 hours, something like that, is the Saros cycle, at least the short end of the Saros cycle. And I think it was seen over, like, France and the UK in August of 1999. It's cool. You can find videos of this on YouTube. If you go on YouTube and type, type in, you know, like, August 11th or August 12th or 13th, whatever the date was or something of it. But you type in, type in uh, Total Eclipse August 1999, you're going to see video of it from the local news stations that were recording it and people that were viewing it during the 1999 viewing of that eclipse. And that's all part of the Saros cycle, this 53-year cycle of an eclipse occurring three times. It's really interesting how it is. Not all successive eclipses are connected to each other. It's actually separated by a great deal and there are multiple eclipse series running at the same time. It's very confusing. I suggest you, yeah, you can Wikipedia Saros cycle, S-A-R-O-S. You'll figure it out pretty quick, at least as well as I did. I mean, that's all I did for it. But it's fascinating though, like 53 years ago, back in the 60s, this same eclipse that we're going to see over Oregon, that was seen over Anchorage, Alaska and Canada, and probably as a partial over parts of Oregon and the Northwest as it moved down into the, probably, I don't know, the Great Lakes or whatever it is. But as you can think about, that's north of where we are now. And then in 53 years, it'll be south of where we are now. So it kind of moves down as it kind of progresses over the years. And then the reason that 18 years ago, it was over the UK and France, probably 18 years before that, it was over China and Russia. That's because there's a, the Sarah cycle is so specific that it's an eight hour offset every time that that eclipse appears. The reason that it appears, oh, this is complicated. You know, the moon, the moon gets in front of the sun, we get a shadow on the earth. The moon moves up and down, and it only hits that spot where it would pass right in front of the sun when it's at a draconic node. It's that spot where it's right where the sun would be is kind of what it means. And it's not a couple degrees up from that or a couple degrees below from that, which the moon does. That's why we don't get eclipses every month, like every new moon. That's why we don't have an eclipse. It's interesting how that works. And it takes 18 years, 11 days, and 8 hours for that draconic node to fall back in line to a spot where the sun would be there at that time during a new moon to cause a a solar eclipse like this. And it repeats itself the same way and the same way and the same way for like 1500 years until like what we were saying, it was in Anchorage, now it's in Oregon, 53 years from now it'll be further south in LA, let's say. Past that it'll be in Mexico, past that toward the equator, past that in South America. And so 15 well, I don't know, 800, 900 years from now, this same eclipse will be over Tierra del Fuego or Antarctica or something like that. And then it'll kind of spin off and be past the Earth from the North Pole past the South Pole then. And then that eclipse cycle is finished. It's really strange how that is, or at least we won't observe it on Earth anymore, which is, you know, what an eclipse is, for goodness sake. So it's fascinating how that works, but man, I hope you guys uh, pay attention to that. And then since I've talked about eclipses for so long, I hope you guys remember to go check out the photographs that I'm putting up on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, on everywhere else. Uh, I probably have a story or something on Instagram to go around with that too. But yeah, check out some of these pictures. It's a bunch from, uh, from the San Juan Islands, a lot from uh, Eastern Oregon. 
Oh, check out that Pleistocene photo, too. I thought that one was a... Well, that's not Pleistocene. But, you know, it's this picture of Heart Mountain and then the lake that would have been out in front of Heart Mountain, but it's emptied now, right? Emptied for 600, 1,000 years, 2,000 years, 3,000 years, whatever it was, but past after this, the Pleistocene, after the Ice Age, that whole area was filled with water. Now it's dry. It's really cool to kind of be up above it and sort of visualize it that way. But check out those photos. Check out some of the flower photos, some of the foxgloves, some of the wild stuff. It's all over the place. So thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Hope you guys tune in again next time. Bye.